Did you really have to stop? Uh, thank you very much. Good to the choir back after the break over the summer. Don't see why they can't be here every week, every week of the year, why they have to have a break, but they're back from their break, and we're glad to see them back. Well, let's turn to, to John chapter 18. <clears throat> there is one name from antiquity that is well known, I guess, around the world, both to Christians and non-Christians. I imagine there are very few Roman governors whose name has been enshrined in memory to the degree of that name that we're considering this evening. Every Sunday in churches across the world, uh, people will recite that Jesus Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Crucified under Pontius Pilate. We're reading about Him this evening in John chapter 18. This was not a good day for Pontius Pilate. And on this day, we see both the best of Him and the worst of Him. Uh, Pilate was a native of Seville in Spain. That's where the oranges come from, Seville oranges. Uh, he had married uh, a granddaughter of the Emperor Augustus, which gave him an end to the royalty of the empire. He had been in a procurorship of Judea, beginning he was given the procuratorship of Judea in the year 26 AD. Previous people had occupied that role had done their best, really, to show respect to the Jews, but Pilate, when he came, made the mistake of not doing that. Uh, when he arrived, for example, he made his way immediately from the coast to Jerusalem, sending ahead of him troops marching, carrying ensigns emblazoned with the image of Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius, of course, was regarded by the Romans as a godlike figure. And so the Jews, you understand, were incensed by this affront to their religious beliefs. Huge crowds flocked down from Jerusalem to Caesarea, where Pilate was to protest. Pilate let his soldiers herd them into a huge stadium. He lost his cool with them, threatened to have them killed, when to a man each person knelt down and stretched forth their necks as if to say, bring it on, bring it on. Pilate backed off. That was only the beginning of his troubles. Sometime later, he decided he would build an aqueduct, an aqueduct to bring a better water supply to the city, but he went to the temple and he plundered the temple treasury in order to pay for the aqueduct. Pilate was hated by the Jews. Hated by the Jews, and he had fallen out with Herod, who was a kind of puppet Jew, Jew, Jewish king in the area. This was not a good place for Pilate. And increasingly, it meant that the Roman authorities back home in Rome were getting frustrated at him. In fact, he would be removed from office about three years after the death of Jesus. So already by this stage, Pilate knows he has to watch what he does. And when the Jews bring this man Jesus to him, Pilate knows that he's walking on eggs. 
So, in this little record that we have before us this evening, and I'm going to begin really at verse 28, I think, what we see is Pilate, as I said, at his best and at his worst. We see him at his best as an administrator. If you've been following the series so far, you'll know that the Jews broke most of their laws in the way in which they had interrogated Jesus. They broke the law about having a, a, a quick court case without any due notice. They broke the law about having it overnight. Uh, they broke the law in questioning the accused, where, when in Jewish law that was, a, that was forbidden. They broke the law in not having witnesses, not only against Him, but also witnesses on His behalf to testify on His behalf as character witnesses and so on. They broke a whole series of laws. He was punished before any sentence was passed. For example, he was brutalized by them. But Pilate, in his administration of this incident, does observe the Roman laws. You can see that because in verse 28, it begins with part one of the process, which is the indictment. We're told there that, that Pilate went out to the Jews that had brought Jesus to him, and he asked them the question, what accusation do you bring against this man? What, what is the charge? What is the indictment? There may, may very well be a hint of disgust in his voice. It's as if he's saying to them, you turned him over to me, but you still haven't told me what the charges are. Their response to him is indicative of the, of the disgust and, and arrogance that they had in relation to him. Listen to their reply. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Da, what do you think? But do you notice that they're avoiding? By doing that, they're avoiding making any specific charges. They're answering evasively. In other words, they know full well they don't have a watertight case to make. They may have hoped that he would simply sign the death warrant on their say-so. John's subsequent record indicates to us what charge they came up with in the end. But it is Luke in his gospel who tells us, uh, who gives us the accusation in full. Here's what they say. We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Messiah, a king. The Jews sidestep, of course, their real problem with Jesus. They had found Him guilty of blasphemy. They knew that wouldn't fly in the Roman court, and so they come up with these. Pilate found the first two elements of that charge too vague and dismisses them. Subverting the nation? Well, in what way can this brutalized man standing here have subverted the nation? Encouraging people not to pay their taxes? He doesn't follow that rabbit trail either. But this third element, this third element grabs his imagination. This does threaten the Roman state. He claims to be Christ, a king. Now, the governor does not want initially to get involved in their internal dispute. So, Pilate said to them, why don't you take him and judge him by your own law? And the Jews reply, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now, you notice they've already got him killed. He's going to be put to death. They're not qualified. It's not lawful for them to put anyone 
to death. There's irony in that statement at a number of levels, because not only did the Jews lack the right to impose the capital punishment under Roman law, but more importantly, they were forbidden by God's law to execute anyone not formally, formally committed, uh, com, uh, convicted of an offense. So they're, they're breaking every law in their own book. And their reaction to Pilate's teasing remark about taking him back and doing it themselves amounts to a, a, a public admission of the illegality and illegitimacy of their dealings with Jesus. And the Bible quotation says it all. They did this to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken and to show by what kind of death He was going to die. In other words, all of this mess, all of this mess demonstrates both the hostility of His own people and the prophetic word of Scripture, particularly Psalm 22, which spoke about the kind of death that Jesus had to die. Only the Romans would crucify Jesus. So, you have the indictment. Then, secondly, you have the examination. In contrast to Jewish law, the Roman law made provision for the detailed questioning of the prisoner. And so, Pilate entered his headquarters. He called Jesus, and he said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Here he is, this sorry-looking figure. He's been beaten and bloodied by the, uh, by the Jews. He's standing before him in chains, and Pilate asks him. This is the, the charge they're making. They're saying that you are the Christ and that that is a king. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, watch how Jesus responds here. He responds with a, a counter-question, a, a question that takes, uh, that directs attention away from Himself onto His accusers who brought the charges against Him. Jesus knows well and good that this phrase, King of the Jews, could be interpreted in a number of ways, and so He asks the question that really is putting it on Pilate now to say in what sense he is thinking when he says the phrase, King of the Jews. Is he thinking in the Jewish sense or in a Roman sense? Jesus said to him, look at the words, do you say this of your own accord? In other words, does this relate to your position as Roman governor? Or did others, that is the Jewish authorities, did they say it to you about me? Here is Jesus speaking up for himself to answer until he knows what sense the governor is speaking. And suddenly you see Jesus again taking charge of the situation, as he has done over and over again in the Gospels, taking charge of the situation. He knows the rules of evidence. He knows that hearsay convictions were prohibited. And Pilate answered, frustrated, am I a Jew? Am I a Jew? Why, why would you ask me that question? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? What Pilate is clarifying this is asking, have you done anything that threatens the sovereignty of Caesar? So, there's the indictment, there's the examination, and then there's 
the defense. It's at this point that Jesus admits to being a king. But he then goes on to define what that means, to show that it does not challenge Caesar's position. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. I want you to see what Jesus is not claiming here. Jesus is not disclaiming any authority over the world generally. That is, as if His kingdom was kind of an airy-fairy concept rather than a reality, as if His kingdom was a kind of neverland and not this land. But what He is saying is, my kingdom is not like a worldly kingdom. It doesn't look like the United Kingdom. It does not look like the United States. It does not look like a human power base. Uh, we have… Uh, a comment made about these words of Jesus by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6, when he says, Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. And here he is making this good confession. It is good in its manner. He speaks with courtesy and respect to Pilate as the secular authority. It's good in its substance as he contrasts human affairs and divine affairs, and speaks of the overarching sovereignty of God over everything and everyone, everywhere, at all times. My kingdom is not of this world. That does not mean to say that everything in this world is not influenced by it or under it, ultimately. Everything is under the umbrella of the authority of King Jesus. But he wants to distinguish between what kind of kingdom it is. So he speaks as a king about his, about his kingdom. And yet, if you looked at him, he did not look like a king. And that's the way things have remained. There is a, there is a contradiction in Christ's kingdom even today. It doesn't look like one. There are some branches of the church, and there have been some periods of history, church history, where Christian people have wanted the kingdom of God to look like a kingdom of this world. There have been periods where we have wanted the trappings of power and prestige, of influence and control. That's absolutely true. You visit the, the, uh, the palaces of the prince bishops, for example, of England, one like Durham. It's, like a, it's a castle set on a hill the prince bishops had powers and armies in order to enforce their will. Well, that's making the kingdom of God look like one of the earthly kingdoms. Jesus is distinguishing these things. Now, you say, well, here in America we don't have castles except phony ones built by millionaires to kind of remind them of the real ones back in Europe, maybe. You haven't needed castles, but you've needed forts. But, but I'll tell you something. Even in America here, we have had people who want the trappings of power and prestige, who want the kingdom of God to look like the kingdom of this world. The preoccupation with public profile, the preoccupation with being seen with the movers and shakers of society, the preoccupation with the TV listings and ratings, the preoccupation 
with money and looking as if we have money and influence and power. These things belong to this world. They are this worldly things. It's not bad for you to have them, not bad for Christian people to enjoy them, but the church is not to be, the church as church is not to be like this world. In the real world, where the real Christ is present, He does not look like a king. He's unrecognizable as a king. He stands there as a king who has an alternative kingdom. So, I I want you to notice how he unpacks this. He puts it negatively. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not from the world. Earlier on in the gospel, in chapter 6, Uh, we read how the Lord had resisted people's efforts to make Him a king. There was a point very early on where people saw the miracles that He performed. They saw the power of His authority, and the people were gathering, flocking to Him, and and people had this in their imaginations. They were fired up with the idea that maybe this is the leader we need. This is the kind of populist leader who's going to galvanize the Jews against the Romans. This is the kind of Messiah we've always wanted and they tried to make him king, chapter 6, 15. And he, he spitted himself away so they couldn't make him king. Because throughout the gospel, and throughout John's gospel especially, Jesus disavows any suggestions of a political kingdom. His kingdom is not preoccupied with territories and taxes. As king, he is not concerned with pomp and privilege. Christ's kingdom is heavenly and spiritual, at this point at least in redemptive history. It transcends space and time. That kingdom is is wherever there are subjects. You can't point to it and say, there's the kingdom of God, the way you can say, there is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. You can't point to a place on the map where the kingdom of God is, and yet The kingdom of God is recognizable because there are subjects of that kingdom. Wherever Jesus' people are, here we are gathered today in this room, and we are gathered here this evening as as subjects of King Jesus. Citizens of America, at least I hope to be next year, unfortunately not in time to vote, which may be a blessing in disguise, I don't know. (laughs) But here we are, citizens of America, but our we are subjects of King Jesus. We belong to two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And His kingdom transcends all space and exists wherever there are subjects, wherever there are those whose hearts bow to Him, whose knees kneel before Him and recognize Him as Lord. This world is in a state of rebellion. We live as subjects of King Jesus among rebels in Jesus' world. That's the situation we find ourselves in. Jesus underlines the nature of this kingdom and the implications for His people. Look at this. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Today is 9-11. And we remember that there are some people who want to build their kingdom on the basis of terrorist acts and armed violence. 
Jesus is saying his kingdom is not built that way. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God does not have the authority of a leader who dies with a sword on fighting in order to expand the territories of his religious kingdom. No, Jesus says, if my kingdom were of this world, they'd be fighting, but they're not fighting. And even earlier on that evening when Peter had drawn his short sword in order to defend Jesus against these masses who were coming to arrest him, and he cut off the high priest's servant's ear, Jesus put the ear back, healed the man, told Peter, put your sword away. That is not going to happen, he says to Peter. My kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of Christ is not furthered or advanced by fighting. That's why we're not blowing people up. That's why we're not killing people. That's not how the kingdom of God advances. We have swords, but it's the sword of the Spirit that is the Word of God. We have weapons, but they're not AK-49s or whatever they are, and they're not tanks, and they're not bombs. They are mighty through God to the pulling down of spiritual strongholds as we take the Word of God, and we apply it, and we take the means of grace, and we use them. There is spiritual energy, spiritual power that explodes in people's hearts, and truth dawns on people's minds, and men and women are born again of that Spirit and brought into the kingdom of God. That's the kind of kingdom Jesus has, mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, but not by force, not by violence. These are Jesus' words. We go to our founder and we say, our founder says we can't fight to extend His kingdom. Other people can't do that. He puts it negatively, then he puts it positively. Look at verse 39. He doesn't deny that he's a king, but Jesus' kingdom is of the truth, he says. Pilate said to him, so you are a king then. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is the hallmark of his kingdom? Notice, what is the hallmark of his kingdom? Truth. What is the hallmark of those who belong to Jesus' kingdom? They listen to his voice. Those who are of the truth, that is, those who are of my kingdom, are characterized by truth. And what characterizes them is this they listen, they listen to my voice. They hear what I have to say. They hear my word of truth. They believe my word of truth. Because the thing that characterizes the kingdom of God as distinct from the kingdoms of this world is that they are built on absolute, not relative, absolute truth. They are built on eternal, not ethereal laws. They are, it is built on unchanging verities, not changing opinions. The kingdom of Jesus is built upon truth. And you notice how Jesus says, this is why I was born. I came with this purpose into the world. I, I came via birth into this world to be born as a king, and I came to bear witness 
true the truth. And what does it mean to be one of Jesus' people? What does it mean to belong to Jesus' kingdom? It means to show allegiance to Him by believing His testimony, by believing His Word, by believing it, and building your life upon it. Jesus said, I am the truth. And in John's gospel, the truth, the word truth, is nothing less than the self-disclosure of God in His Son, who is the truth. And this provokes Pilate's question. What is truth? Scholars question just how, what tone of voice Pilate has here. Well, we can't tell that. We weren't there. We don't know what tone of voice. Some think he was being flippant. What is truth? Is there such a thing as truth? Maybe he was getting disgruntled, discouraged, cynical. Is there any such thing as truth? Maybe he was really wanting to know the answer. We don't know. It was either disillusionment or bitterness, or maybe he wanted from a pragmatic point of view to know what truth is. Today, we live in an age where truth is elusive, subjective, relative. Don Cupid, for example, wrote in defense of absolute relativism, and he insisted that all values are mortal and therefore transient, that even tragedy, what we call tragedy, is cultural and that there is nothing in the universe to assure us or even suggest to us that life makes any sense at all. Don Cupid's answer to somebody who's experienced tragedy would be to say to them, there is no meaning, no purpose, senseless. That's all it is, senseless. And we feel like that sometimes, don't we? Do you know where you were on 9-11 when it happened? So many of us remember exactly where we were, and our response was senseless, evil. Is that where we have to leave it, though? Is there nothing beyond that? Is there no absolute? Is there no sense that can be made of life? Jesus says, ultimately, sense is made through the truth. We, we live in an age not only of moral, moral uh, relativism, but we also live in an age of religious pluralism, very often dressed up in the guise of tolerance. This is what we are to do. I, I see it creeping into the church. I've been involved in a bit of a debate, theological debate recently, and I've noticed some people, uh, their problem, the problem that they have is not the teaching. The problem is that we shouldn't really make fuss about the teaching. We should be tolerant of people who are in error, people who are teaching lies. We should be tolerant of that because that's the kind of world we live in. Dorothy Sayers wrote about this. She said this, in the world, it is called tolerance, but in hell, it is called despair. The sin that believes in nothing, knows nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive only because there is nothing for which it will die. That's tolerance. It remains alive only 
because there is nothing for which it will die. Jesus believers, Jesus people know the truth. We will die for the truth. We will not kill other people for it, but we will be killed for it. That's the difference. What is truth? Modern cultural relativists say that even scientific method is no longer truth. Is it what the church says? Society says? Or what I say myself? It feels right. This feels good to me. It works. Pilate's a question is very often our question. It may be your question tonight. What is truth? And Jesus' answer is one we need to hear. First of all, that truth is singular. It's not truths, but truth. Not this is your truth, this is my truth. One coherent reality that holds together history, science, values, life. Truth is singular. Truth is objective. Francis Schaeffer used to talk about true truth that matters. True truth, something that's true for everyone, whoever they are, wherever they are, for all times. It doesn't change according to the individual. It doesn't change according to the date. It's not something that's true for me and not true for you. Truth is objective. It can be tested, examined, and trusted. Truth comes by revelation. Here's the third thing. Truth is a given thing. John's gospel has emphasized this. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Revelation. Truth is revelation. It doesn't come by speculation or investigation. It is a given thing, a given thing. We could never have come to know God if God had not disclosed Himself. Jesus said to His Father, just in chapter 17 of John's gospel, when He comes to the Father there at the beginning of His prayer, and He says, "Uh, you've given me authority to give eternal life to all those whom you have given to me, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Truth is something that comes by revelation. And supremely in John's gospel, and in the Bible generally, truth is personal. It is not an equation, it's a person. Plato Plato once said, it may be that someday there will come forth from God a Word who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. I don't know what Plato was thinking about, but when Jesus came, Jesus said, I am truth. He invited His disciples when they came to Him in John chapter 8. He says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How do you know the truth? You come to know the truth by knowing Jesus. Jesus is Himself the embodiment of truth. If you know Jesus, it makes sense of history. It makes sense of everything. It makes sense of your life. It makes sense even of suffering and death. Jesus brings sense to reality. Jesus is reality, the God-man who brings salvation to us. So, here's one of the lessons for us tonight as we wind this up. 
Like Jesus, we are not here to pose a military or political threat to the structures of this world. But as Jesus' people, we live under His rule and serve under His orders. Our citizenship is in heaven, said the Apostle Paul. From whence we look for a Savior, Christ Jesus, who's coming again. We look for, the writer to the Hebrews says, a heavenly city, that is, one with stable foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And His kingdom has to do with truth. Truth about God, truth about man, truth about how man can become related to God by being delivered, saved from, rescued from the relativity and hopelessness as well as sin that marks human life, brought into the kingdom of God, where Jesus then rules and reigns as King in the hearts and minds of His people. Jesus says, all who know the truth, come to Me. All who know the truth, come to Me. That's what He said. And one day, the truth will dawn to everybody. But on that day, it may be too late. It will be too late for many people. On that day when He is revealed from heaven, every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him shall look upon Him whom they pierced. And the truth will be demonstrated and will separate everybody. And the question tonight for you and for me is, am I on the side of truth? Because all those who know the truth come to me, says Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that in Your goodness You would take this Word and and drive it into our hearts. And give us, Lord, we pray, a greater sense of the wonder of being Jesus' people in the world. And we pray that as we in our hearts bow to You and acknowledge Your Son to be our King and Lord, that we would know the truth and that the truth would set us free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.